Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. My guest this week is someone who works at the cutting edge of those futures, how we might make them and what they might look like. Joe Brewer is a complexity researcher and transdisciplinary scholar who has devoted his life to helping humanity through the sustainability bottleneck. He weaves insights from the scientific study of cultural evolution, human cognition, neuroscience, cultural science, economics, Eleanor Ostrom's work of the commons, and earth system science into frameworks for action. I came across Joe because he wrote a Medium post entitled The Survivors Will Be Bioregional, which, oddly enough, caught my eye. And then, in the process of exploring his Earth Regenerators network and all of the things he's doing, I discovered his book, which was published last September, The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. And this is the first book I've come across that really has brought together the immediacy of the moment. He is, as you will hear, very clear that we are in the middle of civilizational collapse. And yet, he still manages to paint pictures and patterns of how we can move through. He does bring together Eleanor Ostrom and regenerative economics, for instance, which isn't a combination that many people get to. And he is walking the talk. He's living in a way that brings this alive and he is creating communities of place and of purpose that are designed absolutely to take us through into the next step of whatever human evolution is. This is not the easiest of conversations. We absolutely do not shy away from the nature of this moment. But I think the resilience within it, the heart, the connectedness, the absolute honesty and the understanding that connecting to the web of life is what we need to do and that it is possible for people to do it. These are messages that we cannot hear too often. So people of the podcast, please do welcome, all the way from Colombia, Joe Brewer. So welcome, Joe Brewer, all the way from somewhere that looks a lot hotter than the UK at the moment. And thank you, author of The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. And it's the design pathway, not a design pathway or multiple design pathways, the design pathway. And you say early on in the book, which is now my favorite book of all time, that we need to walk this path in doing it. it. We haven't got time to plan it all out, see exactly where it goes, and then decide which of the various possible iterations we want. We just have to walk it. So, that in mind, can you explain to us what the design pathway is? And let's keep us in the near future. If we get to 10 years from now, a decade in the future, and we've followed the design pathway, how does the world look and feel? Mm. I'd like to begin with the constraints of physics, chemistry, and biology, and say that 10 years from now, 
we will be in the middle of the beginning of the most intense part of planetary collapse. When the human population is probably declining rapidly, the growth of human extinction or of non-human extinction is going to be at a high point because there's so much inertia in the system that anything else is just a false utopia that ignores reality. And I say that to begin so that we can have a realistic inspiring story of what can happen even in something as terrible as that. Because it's simply unavoidable at this point in time for reasons we could explore if we like. What I see as the most positive outcome for 10 years from now is that something in the range of several million human beings have realized that they need to go through a decolonization process of their own minds to begin deeply reconnecting with the rest of nature, and that they have begun organizing themselves around the healing and restoration of ecological and cultural health at the scale of entire landscapes. So I'm thinking of things like 10 years from now, rivers that are dead today are coming back to life. Places where forests have been replaced with monoculture agriculture have been replaced with agroforestry, which means a diversity of plants growing together in the form of forests. That the way people relate to each other is in a human way that is grounded in local communities and a direct linkage between our personal actions, the supports that give us livelihood, and our ability to feel the living landscape around us. And what I mean by this is things very tactile, like put your fingers in the soil and you can smell that beautiful aroma of soil because there are microorganisms and there are worms and there are fungal networks of mycelium instead of toxic chemicals to kill, kill everything except for the monoculture crop that is being grown. And that children are playing with the adults because we have broken down the separation of adulthood and childhood and we have attempted to reintegrate human community. And this takes many forms. So I'll give an example from where I am to just make it really vivid. I am living in the northern Andes in Colombia, in South America, in a place that is a tropical dry forest. And what that means is that half of the year, there's a lot of rain. Half of the year, it's dry like a desert. So we have a mixture of tropical rainforest plants and desert plants. And so I would imagine here in about 10 years, that we have restored a lot of the topsoils that were destroyed in the last 80 years by monoculture agriculture, that the waterfalls that had dried up are starting to trickle and flow again, that the tourism economy of this place that brings outsiders to come here and party and leave their garbage has been replaced with a way of thinking about education, where people come here to learn how to reconnect with themselves to heal their sense of humanity, and to connect with the landscape as it's coming back to life. And so I would see in 10 years from now, it is highly plausible and highly desirable that millions of people have made an exodus from cities, from corporate jobs, from the treadmill and the rat race, 
have either liberated themselves from financial debt or just walked away from it. And instead of doing something like taking a permaculture course and getting a certificate, they're living within cooperative or community relationships to land, learning how to grow food, learning how to create community, learning how to participate in direct local democracy to make decisions, and how to manage restoration of ecology as a way of healing their own bodies and each other. Because the illusion of separation between humans and the rest of nature has dissolved. But these people are living in the midst of a time of immense and extreme collapse, simply because the planet moves at a slower speed than humans do. And the restoration of planetary health is at minimum two to three centuries from now. So in 10 years, we will have had a movement that is starting to tip the scales for after this collapse process comes to an end. Beautiful. Okay. I mean, obviously, extremely scary, but at least it's good to have all the cards on the table. Um, and I was very interested in your book about the the planetary boundaries, because obviously Kate Rayworth uses the planetary boundaries a lot in her donut box model of economics, and we've spoken about that on the podcast. The one that stand out for me when I first read that is is ocean health, and I recently read an update to the GOES report. It's been it was I got it yesterday, and the GOES report is Global Oceanic Environmental Survey, and their thesis is plants produce oxygen. Fifty percent of the plants producing oxygen are in the sea phytoplankton. We're killing the ocean faster than we know with a mixture of the CO2 causing acidification, but also nitrate runoff, huge big time, and other toxic runoff from industrial agriculture and microplastics. The slope's pretty much a straight line. And if we do nothing, oceans are dead by 2045. And then we have 50% oxygen in the atmosphere. So I think if we're not quite careful, the people 10 years from now are breathing the same amount of oxygen as if we were standing on top of Kilimanjaro now, which is going to make life, you won't be running anywhere. So I think it raises so many questions of how do we, why are people not paying attention to this? But let's leave manipulation of the media to one side for a moment. I'm really interested in the path from here to there. To give a slight bit of context, I've spent the last three years up until the launch of Throughtopia co-running something called Accidental Gods, where we were trying to build a program to say ordinary people. My keystone was single mother with three kids under the age of 10, and that was before lockdown. Lockdown made that much worse. How could we help them connect to the web of life in a way that they could go and sit up the hill, drop into the web of life and say, what do you want of me? Hear the answer and respond in real time. And I had this glorious fancy that we'd get a couple of million people doing this and it would spread around the world and that would be it sorted. And actually we have we have a core couple of hundred who are really dedicated and another rolling hundred on top who come in, look at it and go, you know, this is quite complicated. You're asking me to meditate. I haven't really got time. Sorry. Go. I'm really interested in your perspective. You're in Colombia. You're running all of the things that you're running and there's a long list. How do you see the interface between the world we're in just now, where so many people don't even think there's an issue, to the one that you're describing 10 years from now, leaving aside the collapse which will happen without us, how do we get to the regenerative part? One of the key things is to recognize that regeneration is a pattern of all living systems. And so 
the human body will have to have regeneration for me to be alive from moment to moment. I start in this way because the foundation of the change is the turning back on of our own emotional sensibilities. Instead of distracting ourselves with alcohol, drugs, Netflix binging, or who knows what else, to just not feel. And what we need is to feel. But we need to feel in a way that heals us of our pains and our traumas. And this is difficult because that healing is social. It's connected with other people. And so I see a real foundation in this is something at the core of all of the work that we're doing at Earth Regenerators. And there's an organization that teaches it called ProSocial World. And ProSocial is, in a way, it's like a big body of knowledge and effective interventions. So it's not simply a framework. Basically, in a nutshell at least, ProSocial is the cultivation of human capacities to be in groups together that increase our flexibility of our um, perspectives and our regulation of our emotions so that we can govern ourselves and govern together in groups as though we were a commons. And this includes things like trusting in the good intentions of others, being generous and giving to the group because we feel everything is fair and inclusive, having decision-making and conflict resolution and other things feel fair and inclusive and rapid. And so a set of things that don't normally happen for us in today's world. Really don't. Yeah. But as we have those things, it's like, oh my gosh, we start becoming human again and we start feeling more. And this is the foundation of it all. So I'm envisioning a really interesting positive feedback cycle from that, but we have to introduce people, get them onto the cycle to begin with. How is pro-social world gathering people in a world where trusting in the good intentions of others feels like the entire social media industry is is honing its laser-like intent on making sure that doesn't happen? There's a lot pulling pulling the other way. How do we, as pro-social beings, help to get to get the kind of people, frankly, who often don't listen to this sort of podcast into that kind of cycle? One thing is we probably won't get them. And it's really important to have a reality check on this. The way I like to say it is there are zero examples of civilizations that are sustainable. Every one of them has collapsed. And there are zero examples of civilizations where the majority of people woke up in the midst of collapse and did something about it. Zero examples of this. And I start with this because our ability to become regenerators of the earth requires a grieving and an acceptance and a letting go, really a comfort with death, which is a key part of living systems is death. The breakdown, decomposition, and composting is a big part of all living systems. And part of this comes about in our lymphatic systems, in our parasympathetic systems, or said another way, whether or not we feel a lot of stress. And so the beginning point is always, how do we heal ourselves enough that we are capable of forming healthy relationships? And a big part of healthy relationships is knowing the boundaries of who is not capable of having a healthy relationship with us. 
And this is a really key thing because to create these pro-social groups, we don't create them by gathering whomever we want. It's we gather only with those who want to. And so in my work, one of the key filters that's been essential to our success is that I only talk to people who I call collapse aware. People who have already come to some level of acceptance and release about the state of the world so that they are ready to enter into a change process. They're ready to take seriously how deeply they have to change. And this removes 99.97, like basically nearly everyone. It removes nearly everyone because they self-select out. Or rather, those people just don't self-select in. But those who do self-select in find a capacity to be vulnerable and open and trusting with each other as soon as they feel emotionally safe. That they begin to co-create in ways that are deeply healing. Yeah. Okay, so it's creating that emotional safety as the baseline and trusting that the people you are sharing that space with have the emotional intelligence to share the space and then beginning to build the communities from that. Or maybe one step before is they may not have the ability, but they seek to cultivate it. Yeah. They are earnestly tre- trying to. Okay. And and no, at the moment, at least, we have a functional internet. We can reach for people like you or pro-social world and ask for help in creating the communities that we want to create. One of the many striking things in early part of your book was looking around the world, there are a lot of small communities like this starting. It seems to me Either I'm becoming much more aware of them or there are actually a lot more of them than there were 10 years ago. But you say in the book, it's not enough. Not big enough because we have a small holding of 30 acres here. If we're surrounded by people who use chemicals, then it's not really going to change the nature of the local river. We have to get the whole of the ecosystem of this river, the bioregion, to be regenerative agriculture before it can really begin to make a difference. So... At some level, there needs to be a confluence of these small groups who get together and find emotional safety and are able to connect. Or we're hitting extinction, it seems to me. If, it doesn't really matter. If we have 20 people here who are really connected in the middle of a county of a couple of million and, and the, the rest are not, then we're going to hit extinction just as fast as the rest. Probably faster because they're going to come for our food first. So... How are you seeing the confluences arising? One thing that's really powerful, and it's sort of deceptive in its simplicity, is that there are natural organizing patterns in landscapes, such as water collects and drains, and the drainage of water is a natural connectivity of a landscape. Mm. There are many other kinds, but let's just use water connectivity for now. If we organize human activity, or if you want to say the way we manage our affairs, the way we work with our neighbors around the natural connectivity of landscapes, then we self-organize to the scale of the landscape. And that's where the river example is a good example. For example, if you have a river and there are fish in the river and you want to keep the fish population healthy, you can't manage a little sliver of the river that goes across your farm. You have to go to the scale of the river and then look at the migratory patterns of the fish and the mating habits and whatever else is relevant to the whole life system of the fish. And so this deceptively simple move, which is let's go to the natural connectivity of landscapes 
and then ask ourselves, how do we reimagine human relationships so that they are in concordance with, so that they are resonant with those natural connectivity patterns? Very quickly, we'll notice two things. One is human systems right now almost entirely are not organized this way. And two, many places are so entrenched in existing infrastructure that there's no readily available way to do so. And this leads to another interesting insight that I call the Detroit phenomenon. Detroit is a city that was a major center of industrialism in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Ford Motor Company was there, for example. And so Detroit was this place that was a center of industry. And in the early 1990s, it collapsed, went from about a million people to 100,000 people in 10 years. And then in the collapse, after the collapse, it was basically all the poor African-Americans who were left behind because they were economically trapped and couldn't leave. And there was a renaissance that occurred. Hmm. People as squatters, squatters claimed houses and started pea patch gardens and artist communes and all kinds of interesting things. The first African-American mayor was elected, started telling people squatters' rights could lead to cooperative ownership of the houses, and this transformation of the economy began to occur. But the secret was, it was post-collapse. It was after all of the entrenched infrastructure of extraction had fallen away and was ignoring it, that the composting of it, which was naturally occurring, no one organized it, it just was naturally occurring, gave rise to a different possible arrangement of human relationships. So I say it this way because a lot of people will try to create urban sustainability. I live in London. How do we make London sustainable? But if you look at London, London is a nexus of global supply chains, which are profoundly unsustainable and go in the opposite direction of sustainability. Now, I used to attempt to work in urban sustainability, so I've become disillusioned at my foolishness from an earlier time in my life, which is there are zero examples of sustainable cities in history. There's never been one. What's happened is there have been boom-bust cycles of cities re-emerging in the same place as empires and civilizations go through patterns of collapse. There you could look at a place like London, several thousand years of history reoccurring with what we call the same city, but they're not. Because they're actually different empires and civilizations rising and falling throughout different periods of time. But they co-locate on a geographic nexus point, which is a river system near the coast. And so this is what's interesting is that when we ask ourselves, how do we make a place sustainable? And we realize this connectivity to the global supply chains that we need to go somewhere that is not so deeply entrenched in the old system, which is either a place that never became so entrenched or is post-collapse and the collapse broke down the entrenchments. And that's why a lot of people feel powerless to create transformational change because they try to enter into the structures of their community and change is really hard and really slow and overwhelmed by inertia in another direction. Okay. Many, many directions we could go with this. Let's stay with this model then. Because if I think of Detroit, I'd be very interested to know where its politics are now. Let's see that aside for the moment. That's a, probably a separate conversation. It was a city in collapse surrounded by a late 20th century, early 21st century, fairly affluent nation. Broken politics and broken money system, but nevertheless, it 
Detroit in its composting of itself could draw in from a functional surround. What we're looking at 10 years from now is there are not going to be many functional surrounds to draw on. And so in the next 10 years, we have to establish the networks that are resilient to be able to feed people, to be able to have clean water. It would be jolly nice to have power and really nice to still be able to talk to Joe in Colombia from here, and that will require functional and intact internet systems with servers and server banks and all of those things, which I'm thinking is kind of unlikely. None of this sounds very sustainable to me. How are you envisaging you're not. So I am endeavouring to bring us to a future that feels like something we would genuinely want and doesn't feel like we're stepping back into a past that is so long ago we no longer have the skills. I think a lot of our forager hunter or early agrarian past was, was delightful, but I can't see modern 21st century people surviving for very long in that culture or in that setting. Most people don't even know how to make clothes anymore. So other than scavenging on the remnants of the civilization that's dying, how do you see people creating a, a resilient and survivable, sustainable culture? Well, first of all, um, we have to think of sustainable human culture within ecological limits, which means a significantly smaller human population and significantly smaller ecological footprint per capita, the combination or what's sometimes just called ecological load, which is sort of the, the impact on the environment from each individual member of the community, you know, scaled up to the size of the community. It's like ecological footprint attempts to measure that as one example. And um, when we think that way, we start to see that some of the most sophisticated cultural models have been agroecological models. They're not agricultural. So, for example, the milpa of the Mayan people of Mesoamerica, which is a type of agroforestry or um, food forest system that has existed continuously for at least 8,000 years. And the model of the milpa is very interesting in that the structure of the system itself has 50 or more beneficial species, depending on how much cultural knowledge there is. You know, there are studies that show different Milpa models in parts of Belize and parts of Guatemala and parts of Mexico that have lost or maintained different levels of knowledge and different levels of productivity. But the other key piece is social organization. Mm. The Milpa has 12 stages. When the early stages of it, it lasts between 20 and 25 years, depending on local climate and ecology, where it goes through a cycle of 12 stages. And the early stages of this, what is basically growing a food forest, um, the early stages are on cultivated crops, food crops. The later stages are on things like construction materials and building materials and weaving materials and medicinal plants and other things. They're sort of intermediate. And it's a very complex system, but you can see that 12 stages, different benefits at different times. The thing is you don't have single-family homes on a private lot hmm. permanently staying with this 12 cycles repeating. What you have is semi-nomadic people with an annual cycle of movement throughout their territory with multiple milpas at different stages. You know, one of them is at stage one, another one's at stage four, another is at stage seven because they're 12. And from wherever they're living at that time of year, they can access all 12 stages from different locations where milpas are being maintained by loose alliances of families. Mm, okay. 
which is sort of a loose mesh network of social organization woven dynamically across a landscape. And so you can notice a couple of things about this. One is it's a highly productive, highly concentrated system, the agroecology forest system. But it requires humans to adapt themselves to the movement patterns and the cooperation patterns that their landscape allows. So this is very, very different from something like let's create a regenerative agriculture project on our farm because the depth of the realigning of relationship is very deep. And so um, what I see is that this re-recovering of indigenous lifeways, like the milpa, which like I said has lasted for at least 8,000 years. There are other models in the Amazon that go back about 14,000, but the milpa could sort of be your stand-in mental representation for all of them. Um, in the absence of studying them further, say there are these very complex, very dynamic ways of managing huge amounts of plant knowledge and animal knowledge of local ecology. That that way of being is going to take centuries to evolve. It accumulates over time. So luckily we have anthropologists and agronomists and others who have studied these systems before they've gone away so that we could reproduce them and teach them in the span of 10 years. Do you reckon we really can? Two weeks ago we had a we had a Centropic Agroforestry workshop in three days, two weeks ago, where we gathered and analyzed 25 species, planted 7,000 trees in the span of two days with 30 people, and now we're watching it grow as a living laboratory because all the knowledge has been accumulated. So yes, it can be done much more quickly. But it's re-education and it's unlearning. We have to unlearn a bunch of things and then we have to learn a bunch of new things and then continue for generations into the future. And we're continuing for generations in a world where the changing climate will be accelerating. Even if we went to zero carbon tomorrow, there's baked in a lot of change. And so the data points that we gathered of how things were done a couple of centuries ago are not necessarily going to be valid as I'm sure humidity, rainfall patterns, all of the climate issues are shifting. Okay, so this is sounding like we're shifting back into how things were. And Colombia, the indigenous past is relatively recent. In the UK, you know, the Romans basically annihilated our indigenous past. We've got 2,000 years. And I've just finished reading um, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow, which is an amazing, amazing book. And it seems like in the UK, we kind of got agriculture for a while, and then we went, you know what, we don't want to do this anymore. And for at least 1,000 years, we went back to gathering hazelnuts, and, and they were our staple. Um, and then we decided agriculture was fun again, and then the Romans turned up and annihilated everything. And at a recent forestry walk around here, talking to the guy about, you know, could we reforest Britain? He said, well, no, because in the days when Britain was an amazing forested nation, there were no grey squirrels. But since then, people thought it was fun to bring little grey fairy things. Trees get to 12 to 15 years old, and the squirrels just bark them because they taste really nice at that point. And there will never again, while there are grey squirrels in Britain, be forests of big, tall trees. So we can't go back. We have to find agile, resilient ways to move forward, bringing the knowledge that we've got, gathering the old knowledge that we need into what seems to me to be a different way of being than anything that has happened before. Are you seeing that or are you seeing a return to something ancient? I would add another element, which is implied in everything you said, and I, and I know you know this, but just for the sake of including it here, all agriculture and all civilizations existed during the Holocene, 
this 11,000 year warm stable period, which is now over. It's gone. And geologists who are some of the most conservative and slowest to change of scientists, the stratigraphers, have said we're in a different geologic age called the Anthropocene. And so the Holocene is over. Yeah. All bets are off from the Holocene. I think this is extremely important to say that we need to aspire not to be the romanticized indigenous of the past, but rather to become the future indigenous. And the future indigenous is one of those delicate topics that can be misunderstood so easily. It's kind of dangerous. And yet I think it's one of the most important conversations for us to have. What does it mean to look back at indigenous human cultures, the great diversity of them, because there are many, many, many of them, and to ask which indigenous cultures were sustainable and which were not, and why? And what were the ecological and cultural functions that enabled the sustainable ones to work? And then how do we imitate those functions to give us a better chance of becoming sustainable in the future, which means the future cultures become future indigenous? But this is after the Holocene, not before Mm. and not during. Even the Milpa I just described for 8,000 years, that was entirely within the Holocene. And so you see how deep our unlearning needs to go. One of the things that um, does come out about sustainable indigenous cultures, my friend Michael Dowd puts it in a really succinct way. He says, there are the cultures that are pro-future and the cultures that are anti-future. And the ones that are pro-future personify their essential ecological relationships and make them sacred. So as an example, the river is a person, and you have to give gifts of gratitude and respect to the river, because if you don't, you will die. Because if you poison the river, you die. And so it's an alignment of human religious and spiritual sensibility with human psychology and personification and narratives and mythologies, all connected to rituals and ceremonies of the sacred that are functionally pro-future. They function in a way that secures the future. This is your classic seven generations thinking, just naming it in a slightly different way to say that we can design for pro-future by studying the anthropology of indigenous cultures. But that doesn't mean we try to romantically reproduce them as they were, Hmm. because they were in a different context. They were pre-invasion, pre-colonization, during the Holocene, et cetera, et cetera. But still, they're the best models we have. And so we need to learn from them. But we also have science, which has a lot to offer, and it is a great model for building knowledge. Notice how I'm not saying it's perfect, I'm not romanticizing it, but I studied Earth system science, satellite data, supercomputers, scientific visualization, and I understand that humans have a new perception of the planet because of the complexity of our technology and our science. We can create dynamic computational simulations of the Earth as an ocean-atmosphere-coupled system, and that is extremely valuable. And so we have this way that our indigenous ancestors could not possibly have done. So to try to blend, you know, while we still have this knowledge, while we still have this Earth-observing system of satellites and sensor data and all of that, use it to the best of our abilities during the loss of it, during the time, like you said, the internet may go away 
to enable us to see our embeddedness in local place as part of a planetary awareness, which is something our indigenous ancestors did not have to do. And so some of them had a cosmology that appeared to be like the scientific worldview, but that's usually post-science thinkers projecting that yeah, onto absolutely. Them. Yes. So we want to be careful yes. about that too. But you see what I'm suggesting here is that there is a way of using the accumulation of cultural evolution to our benefit, almost like a seed bank of culture to put into regenerative cultures much more quickly than cultural evolution would have done on its own in the absence of this very special moment in history. Right, which takes us to the whole concept of conscious evolution and and the evolution of consciousness consciously made, because we are at a different point in history. We are at the wholly unpredictable external world. We, we have no idea what happens when you mess with the Holocene and kick things over tipping points, but it's going to be exciting. And we also don't know what humanity is capable of if we bring the best of all the previous worlds together in ways that are regenerative and resilient and and connected. So what are the strategies with the time we have left while we're in the crumbling system, but it still feels as if we're teetering on the edge of normality? What are the best strategies that we have for building the resilience that we're going to need when the normality is a great deal less normal? I want to answer this in two ways. One is the sort of planetary solution, planetary strategy, if you will. I don't really like the word solution. But the planetary strategy is organize ourselves around functions of landscapes, just organize ourselves around bioregions wherever we can. So that if there's a network of bioregional regenerative efforts and many of them fail, we don't go extinct if only one of them doesn't fail. So it's sort of a hedging our bets strategy, have as many diverse local expressions as we can. And even if all but one fail, we didn't go extinct. As a worst case scenario for not going extinct, that would be our worst case scenario where we don't go extinct. So that's our planetary strategy is organize around creating local living economies at the, the territorial functional landscape scale, like the function of water, like I mentioned earlier. So that's one piece. The other piece is connect to our bodies through body-based, this is sort of like a personal level, It's connect to our bodies through body-based practices. Mindfulness, meditation, breathing exercises, um, biodynamic healing, yoga, martial arts, dance, things, painting, um, contact, improv, there are all kinds of things people do to connect back to our bodies. And with that body connection, connect also to land and slow ourselves down to the ecological scale. A lot of people say, the culture is changing so quickly, we have to speed up to keep up with it, and that is exactly the wrong mm. impulse. The right impulse is disconnect from that speed, because that speed is self-destructive. It's like, to be healthy, let me try and change my body at the pace of the cancer moving through my body. It's the wor- it's, What you want to do is restore the normalcy of healthy balance. And that is, um, for... For me, in the last year, I started removing invasive grass, digging water retention systems, creating mulch, waiting for the wind to bring native seeds, waiting for the rainy season, and lots of native bushes and shrubs came, bunches of flowers that attracted the bees and the wasps. The bees and the wasps attracted the, the spiders that eat them and the reptiles that eat them, you know, little lizards and the birds, and the ecosystem started filling itself back up in the span of a few months. But I wasn't trying to do it fast. 
I was just preparing the space for ecology to do it itself and harmonizing my body's daily rhythm with the rhythm of the ecosystem. Yeah. Beautiful. Just like gardening for ecology. And I think this is a really key strategy. Connect to our bodies doing body-based work to become sensitive to our bodies change as we connect to ecological change at the pace of ecology. Yeah. Not to try to make ecology change at the pace of human culture, which right now is frantic and excessive. Yeah. So what we're, we're talking about, certainly in my world, what we would call shamanic connection. And then I'm really interested. To what extent are you finding that the land is inviting you in as a co-creator and you don't have to think too much, you just have to do what the land asks of you? Is that becoming a thing? It's not only becoming a thing, it's becoming the thing. Yeah, because it does. What happens, yeah. yeah, what happens is this. Human beings, and let's just think of shamanism in one expression, because I, I can tell you know a lot about this. One expression of shamanism is the shapeshifter of consciousness, which is the human who embodies the jaguar or embodies the frog. It's this human capacity for empathy, as your cat arrives, I love it. <laughs> yeah, this human capacity to explore the consciousness of other beings and then bring their intelligence into the human world as guidance. And what plant medicine and other things are about. I'll use Western scientific perspective for a moment so it doesn't sound too mystical, even though the mysticism is hugely, hugely important. But I just want to make it really concrete, which is the human capacity to connect in these different empathetic ways is deeply wired into the flexibility of our brains, to our neocortex. And so when we start listening to the land, when we just open ourselves to the possibility that instead of us doing something to the land, the land might have something to say, we will surprise ourselves at our own readiness to hear it because we are an evolved animal organism that does that. Yeah, so it's, it's instant. Well, not like it's instant as in we recognize it and get it. We may have trauma and baggage and numbness and things that get in our way, but as soon as we're able to feel it, it's like the universe is talking to us through all the life around us. We just had no idea that we had closed ourselves from it. It's, it's instant and pervasive. Yeah, totally. And, and it feels to me that it's such an integral part of the heritage of being human, this, that capacity to do that. And that if we could rediscover it, we wouldn't need Twitter and Facebook and all of the fast stuff. Because once one is connected to that, the whole world is magic and alive. And yeah. So you have a young daughter and my partner has grandkids of, I think, roughly the same age. And it seems to me that they're born as connected. And that a lot of what we do in our kind of ghastly education system is, is to close all that off. Are you finding with your daughter, given how connected you are, that she is able to maintain the connection she was born with? I would say it the other way. I have this sensitivity because I connected to her ability to connect. Right, right, yeah. This is really important that for most people in the modern urban world, we have to go back to work fairly quickly and we put our kids in daycare, and we don't interact with each other, and then they're in some building or a playground, these human-constructed environments. So my daughter has two parents 
that decided when she was born, we would give the first three years of our lives to both of us being full-time parents and with unstructured time in nature as much as we could. And we thought, we're doing this for her. (laughs) What we didn't realize was how much. I mean, we knew we needed it for us, but we didn't know how much. When my daughter would, you know, she's two and a half. Like right now she's five. But think back when she was two and a half and we're walking around and she wants to sit down and make a pile of dirt and put sticks in it and just, you know, like make her a little mountain. And I sit down and enter that world with her. My brain slows down. My body calms. I discover joy and innocence because I'm sharing it with her. Not because I'm bringing it to her. It's the other direction. And this is just like we can hear from the rest of life in the landscape. Oh, if we just don't shut it off on our children, they'll give it to yeah. us. Yes. So are you building a community with other kids who are also still sharing? Because that seems to me this is the future is we just hold enough space for that generation who've never been distracted from the world to be completely tapped in and then give voice to what the web of life really needs. And, and I'm listening back to what you said about urban environments, because I had got a headspace of we could make urban environments regenerative, but it's going to be very hard to raise kids who are completely connected without being in the wild and without, I've written on my pad UBI, the only way that that ordinary people could possibly do this is if we have universal basic income. And a lot of the economic tweaks that are perfectly doable, but just not within the current political environment. So I don't want to drag us away from the magic because that felt so amazing. Are you able to create around you uh, a community where there will be other children sharing with your daughter the magic of the world? So far, no. Instead, what's happened is our child gets pulled back into the other world because she needs other kids to socialize with. And this has to do with a particular kind of decolonization, which is financial liberation freeing ourselves from economic servitude, which is where UBI comes in. Our universal basic income is that I had a big enough social media network that we could definancialize our lives so our costs became really low. And I was able to create a Patreon account. Patreon is a monthly recurring donation in support of artists for the most part. And I receive about 1,000 US dollars per month which where we live, we can support ourselves because we have very low cost. And for that, I'm able to give all of my knowledge away and build gift economies for all the work we do. And I'm able to spend as much time as I want with my child. But all of the parents of her friends, where we are, this is a local tourism economy. Bari Chara is a town of 7,000 people in the mountains. It's a tourist attraction for Colombians. So most of the parents of the other kids have shops in their homes to sell to the tourists and they send their kids to school. And when they're busy, their kids watch Disney movies and whatever. And the consumer culture comes in. So then my daughter comes home from school, you know, picking up uh, sticks and saying their guns because there's a little boy that watches the Spider-Man movies and you get the idea. And so the problem is the entrenchment patterns. The entrenchment patterns are everywhere. Not like everywhere, everywhere, but you know, like, They're very difficult to get away from. Unfortunately, um, even those who do into intentional communities and eco-villages bring their own psychosocial developmental entrenchments. And that's why so many of those fail with people cheating on each other and other kinds of cycles of trauma that are sort of pervasive in a lot of intentional communities. 
that it's just really difficult for, for this to work. And so the key that I found so far, which is a pragmatic compromise that I don't like, but it's just where we are realistically, is that as much as we can, we keep the nature connection alive in our child while she also has the social development with other kids. And while we gradually try to shape an influence within the limits that parents can with all these other entrenchments, how our child interprets what's happening with the other kids. All right. Okay, which sounds not unlike what's happening in, in various other communities around here. So we're nearing the end of the time. And I want to give listeners a sense that there is agency. We're not necessarily all going to hell in a handcart straight away. For people listening who are, by definition, a self-selecting group of people who understand that there are issues heading down the line and that there are still things that can be done, what can we do, in your view, to begin to make the differences that need to be made within the next decade? One of the key things is we need social supports. Or a technical term is cultural scaffolding. Cultural scaffolding is just, you know, like a scaffold you use developmentally to make something until you don't need the scaffold anymore and then you remove it. Like holding a child's hand when they can't walk until they learn to walk. And then they don't need to hold your hand anymore. It's cultural scaffolding. What we focused on in the Earth Regenerators community is how to create cultural scaffolding for people to make life changes. And so one thing I would encourage is join Earth Regenerators because it's a free, open access community with 4,000 members and growing. And we have a very well-prototyped, like tested um, approach that we call a learning journey within Earth Regenerators. There are other places that have learning journeys too. Ours is an eight-week process facilitated using the pro-social approach that I briefly mentioned earlier to help people create the social supports that they have lasting friendships after the eight weeks and they can continue helping each other with their life changes. And so I think one of the key things is finding the others. Brilliant. Finding the others is so essential. But not only finding the others, finding others in a mutually healing way, where we come together in such a way that we're not frustrated and complaining together. We're not like, you know... Um, throwing vodka bottles at the, at the city as it's burning together, as we're drunk. and You know, we're not, we're not doing that sort of thing. What we're doing is healing ourselves, calming each other, feeling a sense of belonging and connection. And from that, connecting to our heart sensibility of our purpose and knowing that there are other people that we can support and who will support us as we explore the changes we need to make. Yeah. And what that can lead to is a diversity of supports that are invisible to us in our mindsets of scarcity when we're all alone and stressed and scared and the surprising abundance of gifts that each of us brings when we're open to helping each other. We can have the gift of a shoulder to cry on, we can have the gift of giving someone frequent flyer miles to have an airline ticket to go somewhere to join a project. We could give money to a, a joint cause. We could have advice and counsel to give, like an elder to a young person. We can have passion and energy and a desire for service, like a young person to an old person. And the thing is that we don't know how much surprising abundance there is until we are calm, open, 
and oriented toward love and care for each other. So that's why we need to find the others and be mutually supportive in our healing. And our empowerment comes through and what arises then? It's not me saying, and then you do this because it's the right thing to do. It's that you know in your own heart what your calling is to do when you're connected and listening to your heart and supported by others who see you and feel what's in your heart and love you and they want you to be healthy and flourishing. So this, this reconnection with the others sounds so deceptive, like, oh, well, that's not going to fix the big problems. It's like, actually, it's the way that we regenerate ourselves together with others to be able to regenerate something else. Yeah. We can't restore a river until we re- restore our ability to have a friend. And while it seems so small, it is so profound in what it opens up in us. When we're on the path together, it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Restoring ourselves, the ability to have a friend, feels like the antidote <laughs> to the worst of modern culture so that then we can bring in the best bits because there are amazing things that we will want to keep going. We just need to restore that ability. That is astonishingly beautiful. I think we'll call it a day there. Thank you, Joe Brewer. That's been a fantastic, inspiring and oddly encouraging conversation. Thank you. Yeah, this is something to just close with is that the truth may be disturbing and scary, but it's also liberating. Because mm. what we don't have any more time for is false beliefs in some utopian future. What we need is a realistic future that is worth having. Yes. And that is a truly human future, but there's a lot of grief and loss which means we need a lot of spiritual maturity. But as we spiritually mature, our ability to love grows and our joy for life deepens. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Joe for the quality and depth of his thinking and the quality and depth of the work that he's doing and the projects that he's bringing to the world and to humanity. I will put links to his Earth Regenerator Network and also to the GoFundMe video that he had genuinely just finished recording when we hit record for the podcast. So by the time this goes out, it will have been out for a little while, but I heartily encourage you to engage with the pro-social ideas that he's bringing forward and then to find your local bioregions and begin to make the networks that are going to help your area to be resilient, and to survive. Because genuinely, time is quite short. I need to check that I can share the update to the GOES report, but also, perhaps you don't need to read the detail. Life is changing much, much faster than it seems if you just switch on the television. And it would be good if we were prepared. The things that Joe are doing are ways to help us prepare. So if you're interested, head off and find the links. And in the meantime, we will be back next week with another conversation. Enormous thanks in the meantime to Cara C for the production and for the music at the head and foot. To Faith Tillery for the website and the conversations that keep us moving. To Anne Thomas and Jill Coombs for the transcripts. And as ever, to you for listening. We absolutely wouldn't be here without you. And I am always enormously grateful for the emails 
and the comments and the thoughts and the suggestions of other people that we could interview. Thank you. And if you know of anybody else that wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.